This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The best career advice that you are not getting is to invest. Hello and welcome to Your In Good Company, an investing podcast striving to disrupt the norms in the finance industry. I'm Maddie and as always, I'm in some very good company with my co-host Sophie. Hello Maddie, how are we? (laughs) We are good, how are you? I'm so excited for today's episode, second of season two, but before we get into today's episode, we would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of this land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders past and present and to the next generation who we hope to create a different future for. So today is a very momentous day because we are welcoming on our first CEO of the Your Ingle Company series, Christina Hobbs from Verb Super. Oh my gosh, our first CEO. What an achievement. Momentous is such a big word, but maybe it's not. And I just think it is. <laughs> I mean, I think it's deserving of the occasion. (laughs) No, definitely. And Christina literally is the most fascinating chat. We speak about all her time working at the UN, which I personally found really fascinating. And we speak about impact investing. Like, and one of the coolest things she talks about is how you can give back, you know, she speaks about microfinancing for women through investing. And for the first time also this series, we are going to discuss Bitcoin and Christina has such an interesting perspective on the use case for Bitcoin in developing nations. So very excited for that. I know. I feel like we learnt a lot in this one because both you and I still have a bit of learning to do in the crypto space and I loved her perspective on it. So let's get into today's episode. Today we are chatting with Christina, the CEO and founder of Verve, Australia's first super fund for women. Before starting her business, Christina worked at the UN for over 10 years where she led or coordinated humanitarian organisations, governments and the private sector to connect the most vulnerable people in the world to the financial system. Christina is an advocate for building the financial power of women and is passionate about doing so through impact investing and ensuring that capital is being used to create a better world. Welcome, Christina. Thanks for having me on. Christina, we're so excited to be chatting with you today. But before we jump into some of our topics, we are going to ask you a couple of questions. The first being, what is your morning routine if you have one? Uh, my morning routine is terrible because I'm not a morning person at all. And I'm actually reading a book on sleep, um, which assures me that this is genetic and not just that like I'm really lazy at getting up in the mornings. So yeah, I'm sort of like someone that kind of rolls out of bed like 10 to 15 minutes before my first meeting or thing I have to be at and quickly grab something to eat at my desk while I'm starting. So terrible, terrible morning routine. But um, as a result, I try to have a really nice lunch routine. Nice. <laughs> so I try to like compensate, sit down at lunch, go for a walk, do all the things. But yeah, I'm, I'm, and I, I like part of my morning routine that's really um, set in stone though is I don't really put any meetings where I have to think about things before about 10 a.m. 
because I've really been caught out in the past having to like, you know, think through things at that time in the morning and it doesn't work well. Love it. And Christina, who or what influenced you to invest? Um, oh, that's a great question. I'll actually give a plug to my to my dear mum for that one. So I was one of those kids that had like a paper run as their first job and earned about, you know, a dollar ninety an hour, you know, <laughs> cycling really hard, delivering papers. And I was such a saver. Like I, I just had a fear of like spending any money because like I was working so hard for like every cent. So I actually had saved something like five hundred dollars by the time I was fourteen. Wow! Yeah, which was like back in the day, that was quite an achievement. And you know, that was like when pocket money was about fifty cents a week, kind of thing. So, and with this money, Mum actually convinced me to go halves with her and buy some Northern Territory railway bonds. So that was Ooh. the first thing <laughs> I owned at about the age of fourteen. So we actually, as a bond, we provided money to the Northern Territory government to build a railway line. And about five years later, I got back, you know, it would have been probably less than $100 for that, I guess. But like, there was two like good lessons about that. Like one was like, if you have a paper on within that age, actually just spend your money because (laughs) (laughs) 50 cents for lollies meant a lot to me back then. And then like five years later, like the value of that money wasn't so much once I had like a job at a proper fish and ship shop. But I think it was also this amazing lesson because I do remember even when I got back that money and I think it was something like my initial deposit plus maybe 50 or $60 or $70. Like even at that time, I remember like $70 that I didn't have to work for at like $6.80 an hour. Like that was like amazing. So I think that was a really good, like really good lesson um, that kind of got me on my way really, really early on. Yeah, it's also money that you kind of forget about. Like it's gone and then you get this interest back and you're like, ooh, I didn't have to do much for that. That was great. Yeah, I'll do that again. (laughs) Exactly. So our final question is if you were a stock or a company, who would you be and why? So probably one that I invest in with Bird, which is just an ETF. It's EFI. It's an ethical ETF. So I would say I I would be this stock because it does a lot of things. It's quite diversified. (laughs) Which is good. Um, (laughs) And the way it works is it's it's an ethical sustainability leaders. So it's not necessarily looking for the most sustainable companies in the world and investing in those. It's sort of like in each category who's really trying hard or you know, who's doing their best. Um, and I think when it comes to sustainability and ethics, that probably sums up me well as well. You know, I'm just doing my best in all the categories. You know? <laughs> well, I think <laughs> not perfect, but, you know. Recycling, yeah. doing compost. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> nice. Well, I think that leads us pretty beautifully into our next question, actually, because you do have a seriously incredible career. So and I are very um, in admiration of all that you've done. But if you could, I guess, share with our listeners a little bit, what is the backstory of sort of where you are today and how did you come to be the CEO of a superannuation company? Um, yeah, I'll try to give you the <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, I've seen my LinkedIn. It's quite, it's quite long. But yeah, so I started my career at Deloitte as a management consultant for a couple of years, working mostly with other financial service companies, like really loved that kind of like big four environment. Yeah, just thought the team, the culture was excellent, but just sort of like one day it really hit me this like working really long hours and just kind of like devoting all my like energy and mental space to just kind of helping banks make more money. And I just really started to struggle with motivation and yeah, just just really wasn't working out. And so I decided to take what was going to be a year off 
at that point and got a government-funded position with the UN, so working overseas as an economist, and I moved to Kathmandu, Nepal, and at the time I thought, oh, a year's a really long period of time and can I last a whole year? And, um, you know, and I always imagined I'd be back, um, back in Australia and back in Sydney kind of in 12 months and have had a good experience but ended up kind of completely shifting my career and then spending about 15 years overseas working with the UN at this really exciting time when the entire humanitarian sector was shifting from giving people like, you know, blankets or food or water or housing or whatever in emergencies um, and even in developing situations to saying, look, if, if markets could function and if there are functioning markets or how can we actually support local markets by giving people cash? And the UN agency I worked for, the World Food Program, it was actually the largest humanitarian organisation in the world, um, but it was full of logisticians. So it was full of like these men that were like fantastic at getting trucks across like you know three different rivers with broken bridges or like <laughs> three like four different conflict lines but like you know when senior management said can you start setting up some like banking systems for like people that have never been banked um in areas where there are no banks um it wasn't the right skill set so people were like Christina I used to work in finance you try doing this and obviously it was like quite different areas of finance but um, I muddled my way through and then ended up in this crazy career and ended up working in, you know, in, in active conflict settings and in some of the, after the big natural disasters the last 10 years. So really different career trajectory. And then, um, yeah, probably about four years ago, I decided it was time to come home and I'd been really inspired by some of the work that I was doing in more development contexts around micro-investing and micro-financing and um, so I need to look at the biggest picture of like ethical funds and how do we get fund money into some of these other smaller funds for these kind of projects. And um, in one way or another, that sort of brought me to superannuation, I think around the same time that, um, you know, I realized a lot of my friends were starting to outsource their financial management to their partners for whatever reason. Um, a lot of people, my friends were coming to me for financial advice and guidance and, you know, I guess I just sort of realised that there was this, like there was all these factors, I think, women retiring less within the news, the Banking Royal Commission, the lack of ethics within the news and, yeah, it just seemed the right time to start a superannuation fund for women and really focusing it on supporting women to learn how to build wealth while also having this kind of ethical approach and looking at how we can use money a bit differently. So that was my third big career change. It's so fascinating. Both Maddie and I did um, international relations, international development at uni. So I feel like we could speak about your time with the UN forever. Um, and our next question was going to be, you know, what led you to create a product specifically for women? But I think you answered it nicely there. It's just through your experiences and through what you saw, you felt like there was potentially a gap in the market um, for an investment platform more t- focused towards women. Yeah, definitely. And I, th- I think it's just... Um you know, I think it was like seeing both sides of the coin on that, that A, there's this, you know, women in Australia hold more than a trillion dollars in superannuation. So that's typically, you know, typically we weren't involved in the investment decisions or we weren't involved in setting up the companies and now invest that money. So there was like this huge opportunity of how can we actually use this money to support women and, um, you know, more sustainable a more sustainable society. But then, yeah, I think it was really this other side as well of, um, you know, what, what would it look like to actually design something from the ground up that's really supportive and and is really tailored for women. And that was quite a fun, fun thing to work on. 
So cool. You talk a lot about, I guess, sort of investing for good and for things that align with your values and values of sort of society more generally. Can you give us a really quick rundown of like what actually is impact investing? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's sort of like two terms that get thrown around a lot. So one is impact investing and one is ethical investing. And sometimes they get used interchangeably as well. So ethical investing is is when you tend is when you sort of it tends to be more screen based or it's investing in line with your values really. And one really good thing to know about this is that there's no standard terminology. So um, for instance, I've reviewed some of the other other super fun products that are called responsible green um, and they're invest they could be investing in things like weapons, fossil fuels, like some of them I've even looked at and I'm like, what is like what is the responsible <laughs> thing in this? Like what, what like, <laughs> Like, how? What? What is the social? Like, what? So there's no kind of standardized terminology, I think, is one really interesting aspect to that. But, you know, if you look at the truly ethical funds or funds that can call themselves truly ethical and very transparent about what they invest in, um, they'll tend to, on their homepage, within a couple of pages, be able to tell you what they're screening in and out. Um, and so that kind of tends to be decisions like, like, so with us, for instance, we don't invest in fossil fuels or companies that finance new fossil fuel development. So, that's pretty simple. Like we don't invest in, you know, a BHP bulletin or um, so there's those kind of screens that go on. And then on the impact investing side, that terminology more generally refers to actually looking for opportunities that drive impact. So for instance, where like a Netflix might make it through on an ethical fund, like because they're not really committing any major human rights abuses or like crimes against humanity, they, they're not really also generating necessarily like positive impact. So an example of like a positive impact, um, one that we're investing in, for instance, going back to the microfinance is a fund called the Vision Fund. It's a microfinance fund that actually provides micro loans to women in developing uh, or low-income countries. And it's backed by an NGO. So the NGO wraps around all the business support and those other things to ensure that the business is a really well placed to succeed. And then our members' money is actually used for the financing. And then it's a very steady rate of return on that investment because their loans have been shown over a long period of time to be repaid back at, at over 90%. So instead of, you know, when we look at superannuation, we try to have a, a really like a mixed portfolio of um, some riskier, higher growth investments and then some more stable investments. So this is just like a really interesting, exciting example of like, you know, instead of investing in the Northern Territory railway line, um, <laughs> taking that money and investing in something that is, you know, virtually as secure with, you know, a higher or similar return, but is actually driving a really positive impact. Yeah, well, you said that, you know, impact investing can be kind of a hard space to navigate. You said there's a couple of different words that are used interchangeably. Um, and we've also spoken about this on our sustainability episode as well. But we wanted to ask, you know, for someone who does have an impact investing philosophy, how can they be sure of their investments? How can they be sure that they are impact investments? Like what kind of information can we be trusting? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, and I think the answer is actually pretty simple. Like funds that are doing this well are really proud of their story on this. So, you know, if you go to our web page, I think it's on the homepage or, you know, it's very it's very easy to find. We say we invest in this, we don't invest in this. And here's some of our great impact investments. And, you know, from the homepage, you can click through and actually see a list of every single company. Um, and so often we'll get people writing to us and they'll say, 
I don't want to be invested in X, Y, Z. And we'll just say, okay, like either we can, we either say to people like, you know, we really understand your views on this, but like we don't agree for these reasons or we can't do that for these reasons. These are our screens. Or we say, we agree with you. We totally agree with that philosophy. Here's our full investment list. Like take a look at it. Tell us if there's something here you take objection to. You can compare that to other options or other funds that could potentially be using those words in their name but you could dig around on their website for half an hour and you wouldn't ever actually find what they're saying they are investing in or not investing in and an investment list. And I've actually had people who joined our fund who have told me that they it actually took them over three months to get information from their super fund about what they were and weren't invested in. So um, I tend to see the funds that are really leading the way on this are really proud about their story and will want to tell you. Um, and you can find that information really easily. And the other ones are, will, will try to be hiding that. And man, you've got to be like, you've really got to like look at the detail because I actually saw one a few weeks ago that was talking about sustainability and environment and climate. And then it was talking about how they're not investing in Australian companies or investing in fossil fuels. But I looked to their investment list and they had a whole lot of global stocks that were. Um, oh. so, like, you know, even tricky things like that where I'm like, you know, oh, like, you know, if you read that quickly or you weren't really looking at word by word, you could, you could be fooled. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting space and I think it, I'll be interested to see like from a regulatory perspective if over the next five years there's some kind of norms developed around this. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think there's got to be some kind of regulation coming in around this area and maybe around the terms and things like that. So we'll have to wait and see. So when I think throughout history, you know, we think about giving to good causes and that has historically been sort of philanthropically and through giving donations and things like this. And now when we think about impact investing, I guess I'm really interested to know what are your thoughts on whether this leads to lower returns or whether we can still be getting those sort of high returns we would be getting by investing in anything else? Yeah, I think it's a really exciting time for ethical investing in general um, in, in this regard. Uh, because I think the last sort of, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago when this started as a concept, I think it was really unknown. Um, but now there's just so much great research if we look. So from Australia, so from the Responsible Investment Association, you can have a look at some of their reports. Um, there's great reports from the US out of Harvard. There's great reports out of the UK and Europe from Oxford. Um, and basically like what the research is showing in Australia and globally is that the funds that are actually ethically screening properly, not just the ones that are doing it by name, um, are actually or have actually shown to outperform over the short, medium and long term. So that's that's true in Australia and, and internationally. So it's a really great news and it's a story we have to get out all the time because we often get like one of the biggest questions is people like, how much more is this going to cost me? Um, but I, I think something that's really interesting about that is that that's done despite ethical funds having generally they won't have the lowest fees so there's no reason that any fund should have high fees but if you look at ethical funds they'll typically sit sort of you know a little bit below the median or around the median and that's because of the cost of doing that screening work so there is actually a human cost of people going through and it's in quite a detailed level so you know when you think at, at Verve for instance we we brought in a whole lot of gender indicators that we look at that, that range from things like how many women are in leadership to do they do pay equality reporting. And so when you think about the amount of work that's required to kind of go through every company and screen it, you know, does it meet all these criteria? It is a bit of work. But the reason that these funds are driving high returns is that 
by the time you make a decision to invest, your investment team actually really, really knows that that company. And it is really interesting because obviously there's a lot of debate just generally about, you know, do you go for managed funds or index funds? And there's obviously a huge amount of investment advisors that are, you know, really leaning towards like the lowest cost index fund you can possibly find. But ethical investing seems to be this interesting, I guess, uh, this interesting example of where um, a managed fund, so a fund that is, or, or, you know, it, or, or is based on a, you know, it could be an index-based ethical fund, but a fund that is based on a greater level of screening is actually outperforming. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really, I think there's just great research on that now and I really encourage people to to go and have a look. But it is important to think about it in the context of fees because I think one of the things that concerns me a little bit in Australia is that so many of the sort of financial coaches or financial thought leaders out there have really focused on fees, which is great because fees are really important and they're a real indicator of success. But I think the next step that's really important is teaching Australians how to read performance. And what really concerns me is that, you know, I saw a while ago from, I won't name the person, but one sort of financial thought leader where they recommended their top 10 ethical funds. I don't think it was even super funds. And they, all they'd done was found the 10 cheapest funds. Um, but unfortunately, those 10 cheapest funds weren't really truly ethical funds. And the performance of those funds has actually been really, really poor. So, you know, I think it's a really important lesson that anyone should start looking at trying to understand how to read performance and understand performance in the context of risk as well. Um, but definitely an exciting time for people that want to invest ethically, knowing that um, there's really no reason to compromise performance anymore. Well, I hopefully we're helping people towards that goal of being able to read performance a little better. And I think it's, you know, that toss up that a lot of millennials are um, going through these days is, you know, you're paying more of often for environmentally sound choices. And that's, you know, people are usually going for the environmentally sound choice, even if it does cost us more. So I think it's really a trend um, that's accelerating. Yeah. And I kind of think about it like, you know, it's almost like just buying a piece of clothes. Yeah, you can go to, you know, a fast fashion place and buy a T-shirt for $4. It probably won't last, you know, it might last a year. Um, ethical investing is sort of like buying a quality product where it might cost a bit longer, <laughs> might cost a bit more. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the data is showing that, that in, in general that they are performing. We are going to take a quick break for our sponsors and we will be right back to chat cryptocurrency with Christina. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
So, Christina, we wanted to chat to you about um, a topic that we haven't really gone into thus far on the podcast, and this is crypto. So we have, you know, some business icons like Charlie Munger has called Bitcoin rat poison, and then we have someone like the Twitter and Square CEO, Jack Dorsey, who said that it could bring world peace. But before we kind of jump into, you know, how this relates to your experience working in developing countries and in finance, we wanted to know what is your best layman's terms definition for cryptocurrency? Okay, so I did get a slight head about this question. <laughs> so I did think, think about it, but um, I, I actually really like the Oxford Dictionary definition. And Lovely. I think that like if you're going to go for a simple one-line definition. So a digital currency um, in which transactions are verified and records maintained by a decentralized system using cryptography rather than a centralized authority. So I really like that because I thought it was short and clear. And, you know, I think that's what crypto really is at the heart of it. It's something that is managed decentralized rather than one central um, by one central authority. Great. Yep. Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that crypto has been pretty topical as of late. Um, You've had a lot of experience, I guess, sort of working in finance and in developing countries in particular with your microfinancing experience and things like that. Recently, we've seen El Salvador adopt Bitcoin as its legal tender. So I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on what is the use case for crypto in developing nations? Yeah, I thought that El Salvador one was quite interesting, <laughs> but um, I won't go into my theories on that in too much detail. But yeah, I think it's really interesting. Look, world peace, I don't know, but um, you know, that I have seen some really interesting applications of it. So we were actually using, I've actually used blockchain technology a number of times for, for providing assistance, particularly in conflict settings. So, and this kind of gives you an idea about like the challenges that people in developing countries face and why this kind of technology could really play a, a really great role. So, um, you know, imagine a conflict setting. A lot of these people that have, you know, fled from that, so they might be within a country, they might be within their country as internally displaced people or as refugees in a neighbouring country. Some of those people will, may never have been banked, so they they may never have been into a, in a formal banking system before. A lot of those people won't have any identification. So whether this is in a conflict setting or even a development setting outside of the developed world, there's huge numbers of people that just don't have identity cards. So countries particularly like Bangladesh and India, there's just millions and millions of people that through all these loopholes never ended up getting a birth certificate. And in a lot of those countries, you can, you know, it's been fine. You haven't actually needed to to be a registered identified person. But now as banking is becoming more important, uh, it's these people can't be banked. So you've kind of got these different situations. And then in a situation where I was working, which was in, in conflict settings, you've also got the problem where, so for instance, I worked in on the Syria refugee response. And, you know, imagine the biggest donor at the time was the EU and they donated to the project that I was working on a billion euros to provide assistance to, to Syrian refugees. And that was Syrians that were coming to Turkey. Now, imagine being the EU, their absolute biggest nightmare fear is that that money is going to end up in the hands of like militia back in Syria and that that's going to end up on the front page of the BBC. Yeah. So blockchain provided this opportunity, it kind of solved all these issues for us. Like it allowed us to transfer money to people that didn't have, didn't necessarily have the know your customer kind of level of ID that you would need to use a formal banking system. It was a really cheap way of transferring uh, money. 
and it provided the accountability and that kind of level of visibility to, to donors to be able to transfer that money. So I've already seen it, you know, being applied in, in, you know, actual context where it was really helpful. And then I think there's some other, just some other trends or factors in low income countries where just does provide this real opportunity. I think, you know, obviously I said the issue of people not being banked, not having IDs. Um, you often see, um, you know, the high cost of money transfer. So, um, particularly with migrant workers. So when I lived in Kathmandu, you know, the average salary in Nepal, I think at the time was like four or $500 a year. Wow. So imagine, um, and then you had those areas in the hills and the mountains where you'd go there and there'd be no men at all because they'd all gone to the Middle East to work. Um, but then they're transferring money back through, you know, Western new money transfer systems and losing like huge amounts of money. So there's definitely these like opportunities around like money transfer, which is like still an expensive thing to do for people that really don't have a lot of money, you know, being able to do transactions, people which don't have the same level of identity. So there are some really interesting problems I think that cryptocurrency can potentially solve for. Yeah, I actually read um, today I was reading an article about crypto and it was saying that if you want to invest in crypto, like in a social sense, to be looking for platforms that provide really low fees so that those platforms can become popular and it means that in developing nations they might be used more widely. So therefore you're kind of promoting a platform that does have those low fees to transfer money for people who can't really afford it. Yeah, and they're probably the ones that yeah could potentially be picked up by those countries where people don't have high incomes and we're talking about low balances. But if you look at something like India, like the market size there is like, you know, if a crypto takes off there, you can get hundreds of millions of people on it. So, but, you know, I think one of the other, one of the issues that makes crypto really hard is the volatility and the pricing. So that volatility for people, you know, like you and I is not as much of an issue, but if you're on a really, really low, if you're talking about really, really low dollar amounts, then any form of volatility is, um, yeah, it's really challenging. It's a lot. I guess it sounds like there could be some pretty amazing benefits to come out of this sort of technology. Does that mean that there is some merit as a potential investment for people like us? Yes. And no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think it's just at this point knowing what, like, what, what are you doing when you're investing in crypto at this point? And, you know, in my view is that you're, you're essentially still investing in a market where people are trading and it is more like gambling because you know the values particularly with a lot of cryptos is that there's not there's not like an underlying asset so you're not investing in a physical thing and the valuations of so many cryptocurrencies and definitely the big name ones is based just on what people are willing to pay for it so it's just it's not based on the value of any underlying asset so you know, if you invest in like a Woolworths, the, the the value of Woolworths is, you know, essentially their brand, their shops, their distribution system, their technology, their X, Y, Z. When you're investing in crypto at the moment, what you're investing in is a bet that more people are going to keep investing in that in that cryptocurrency rather than anything else. But having said that, like I think if you take sort of like a macro view on cryptocurrencies is that some of these will eventually win, be commercialized, be used and like then we'll, you know, begin to foster like a real world, like a much greater like real world value. And so I'm kind of interested in, I guess I've got my eye on, there's a few funds that are starting to try to aggregate crypto. So you're not necessarily investing in individual currencies, but you're investing in, you know, the future of crypto, I guess. So I think like if, you, if you're looking at it from an investment perspective, like that's kind of the, I'm starting to look at those opportunities. 
also that some cryptos are linked to specific sort of platforms or specific uses where that underlying use um, actually has an asset value. So I think that like, you know, looking for those kind of opportunities as well. Um, but having said that, like obviously some people are doing really, really well out of trading crypto. <laughs> yeah, um, some. So, <laughs> yeah. It's not to say that you can't do it. I think it's just like in the same way some people make really good money out of betting on the horses or betting on the AFL or betting on the rugby. Like you need to kind of look at it like that. So there are traders that are able to, you know, understand the trends of like when a crypto is going to start to take off or not take off. And, and so they're able to kind of do that day trading. But what I would what I would really advise against is, or I think what there is so much out there is, is like the strategy for for a lot of people that are trading crypto or a lot of the big the big players, and, and you see this always in investment, right? Like you'll see is to basically go out and use a whole lot of social media platforms to talk out a talk up a particular currency that they've invested in. So there's people that are literally making you know millions and millions of dollars a trade on a particular crypto. And then they're spending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, you know, getting different investment blogs to write about that crypto. So what I would say is like, you know, being hyper alert to like any kind of information you see about any particular crypto about to take off because it probably means <laughs> what they're doing is they're just pumping up that stock. Some serious market manipulation in there. <laughs> to the moon. Oh, totally. <laughs> totally. And then, it's, I mean, it's sort of like you see investment, I mean, I shouldn't, you know, you sort of see investment bankers doing the same thing when, when they've got big mergers and acquisitions and they go out and the investment bank kind of takes a big stake, goes out, pumps it up to a lot of advisors, financial advisors, sell it out to clients. You know, the, the, the investment banks often pull their money out straight away then. Um, and then, you know, it's mums and dads that are left mopping up the mess when that merger or acquisition doesn't work out. Not always, but, you know, you see that happening. It's a little bit like that kind of happening in the crypto space as well. So, yeah. But I think on the other hand, like, if you're finding it fun <laughs> and it's like a good hobby, then like, you know, spend the money you would have spent, I don't know, going to the movies or something. I mean, like, you know. micro-investing <laughs> into crypto. Yeah, exactly. Is the word betting in there quite a few times? And I think that explains pretty beautifully why this is the first time we're discussing crypto on the podcast because it doesn't quite probably align with like the lessons that we are trying to promote. But I think that leads well, or I'm interested to hear Christina, in our final segment for the podcast, each episode we have been asking our guests to add a stock, company, news, trend, industry, um, whatever you like, to our watch list. And the purpose of this really is to get us thinking outside the box and broaden our horizons in the investing space. But, of course, we are not financial advisors and this is for educational purposes. So what are you bringing to the watch list today? I'm going to talk about medtech. I don't know if you've had a, anyone talking about medtech yet. So it's an area, so as an ethical fund, because we, we're not investing in a whole lot of other industries, that there's industries that we need to... I guess, double down investment on um, or really look at. And I think medtech is a really exciting one. Um, and it's something that's really started to take off again after COVID. And I guess some of the companies that we're looking at or trends, I don't want to sort of say any specific companies, but I think some of the trends that we're looking at is if you think about what's happened, you know, digitally in a workplace, for instance, with COVID about all this kind of online, um, you know, like Zoom, you know, stocks soaring and having to do um, online work practices, um, this is a really exciting space that we're seeing in med tech as well, which is like how do you do more of the diagnostics and um, more of the monitoring remotely as well. 
And so I think this is like a space where we're starting to see a lot of information and seeing a lot of movement. There's some interesting mergers happening as well. So um, yeah, for me, I've never really invested personally much in medtech, but it's an area that I'm just starting to like learn and look more at. And I think particularly looking at this kind of what does a future world look like post-COVID when I think in general the hospital systems are going to go a lot more um, remote and looking at which companies are kind of nailing solutions on this. Yeah, I think this is like specifically a really cool space that I am definitely looking into. The healthcare industry is going to change so much over the next, you know, 20 to 50 to 100 years. And Maddie and I are always talking about when you are making investments, you know, what is the future growth plan for that kind of industry or trend? And I think this is one that's just going to transition so much. And especially after COVID, seeing what we can do remotely means that others will probably follow that suit as well. So that's an exciting one to add to the watch list. I love it. Now, we always close out by asking our guests a couple of questions. So we'll give you some questions which are hopefully easy for you. So you've had an incredible career, Christina. Um, What would you say you're most proud of? I I think it was. I think it has been birth because... You know, I've got all these like really proud moments of working with the UN for sure, but I think nothing has been as hard as starting a superannuation fund. And so I think just from a personal level, I'm just really proud of pushing through that and still alive. And yeah, keeping still alive. <laughs> Love it. And Christina, where do you get your investing inspiration? What are you reading to, listening to, learning from? So for me, I've probably got a bit of an insider advantage because we do have our entire investment team. So yeah, it's probably talking a lot to that team, trying to understand what they're looking at and what they're excited by. So yeah, I probably just have a bit of an insight <laughs> um, advantage on, on that one. And then I think apart from that, like mostly what I do outside of that is, um, like Sophie said before, is like looking at trends. So Um, I'm just reading, you know, even like The Economist, The Financial Times and trying to look at like what are trends that are emerging and then which companies are like operating inside those trends and doing a good job inside those trends. Yeah, it's just exposing yourself to as many different resources as possible, I think. Our last question, Christina, is what piece of advice would you give to your younger self starting out on their investment journey? Yeah, so I think just enjoy spending (laughs) a bit as well. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Because, you know, I was such a saver. Um, but yes, I think being able to enjoy, for me, it was really like, you know, it took me, you know, I probably like the opposite of a lot of young people, but it took me a while to actually learn to enjoy spending money as well, um, and not feeling guilty about it. So I think that's one, but, um, yeah, I think definitely just starting, starting early is the key. Starting early, um, not taking huge risks, but I think you can have some fun with, you know, saving a few hundred dollars and then taking a taking a bit of better bet on that one while you might have your stable kind of investments going as well. Love it. Well, Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. If anyone wants to find out more about you or about Verve Super, where should they go? Just head to vervesuper.com.au or you can find me personally on LinkedIn as well. Amazing. Thanks so much for your time. We hope you enjoyed chatting with us as much as we enjoyed chatting with you. Great. Thank you. 
God, I love having these chats because it's so inspiring, like speaking to these women who have become CEOs of companies. Like, how do you even become a CEO of a company? Like, who, who has the time to be like, I'm going to start up a company? So true. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did. For more chats, make sure you jump into our Facebook group. Ask any questions from the episode you have there. Very keen to continue the conversation. So what's a Facebook group? YIGC Investing Podcast Discussion Group. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. And also our Instagram. We are loving all the interaction we're getting from you guys on the Instagram. Make sure you DM us or, you know, comment on the posts. We love interacting with you guys. It's YIGC Podcast. Follow us on Twitter or on TikTok at YIGC Podcast and make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We will catch you next week. Just go on every social media platform, (laughs) really. Bye. You're in good company is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of You're in Good Company are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In a spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Your Inkwood Company acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.